this time of year, we certainly um, appreciate, especially the contribution of all of, all of our music program. Um, you are blessed every Sunday, but at this time of year, music has the power to truly uplift. And so we thank again our choir and our musicians and, and all that make it such a blessing. And we've especially appreciated that this Advent season because we focused upon this song, Joy to the World, which has been around for 300 years. And sometimes we take for granted the power of hymns. There is so much rich theology within them. We sing them, we kind of take them for granted and put them aside. And so it's, that's what's been fun for me to break this hymn down a little bit and pull some key phrases out and, and, and open them up because Isaac Watts put a lot of thought. There's a lot of theology placed within each of these phrases. So we've looked at a key phrase each week. We start with the Lord is come. And then we follow that up with the Savior reigns. Last Sunday, we said, let the earth receive her king, as we talked about how hard it is for many of us to receive anything, let alone what God has to give to us. Today, I want to focus upon this, this sentence, he rules the world with truth and grace. I want you to think about that. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe God rules with truth and grace? Or at least do you sometimes have your doubts? I think most of us do sometimes. Recently, I was with someone who had just lost a relative to a hard battle with cancer. And this person looked up at me with pain and said, why did God let this happen? Well, I've been asked that question many times in my ministry. And I knew at the moment this person didn't need a thorough, rational, theological explanation. She just had her pain and she needed to express it. And I just said in that moment, I wish I had a good answer for you because there's no simple answers for things like this. Now, later on as the mood broke and we were able to have some more in-depth conversation, I did share with this person that, that I have found helpful in my struggle with this problem of how does God let evil exist in our world, that reading of this little simple book, The Will of God by Leslie Witherhead, has been such a helpful understanding. He wrote that book right after World War II to explain the reality of the Holocaust. And this person appreciated that. But her question's real, isn't it? It's a question that many of us wonder. Does God really rule the world? And we sing that verse in this song, we sing it with such power, but do we really consider what it means? How does God rule the world? Because boy, we look around, we see a lot of things out of control. One in nine people in this world are going hungry every day. And that number's increased the last few years. We've been depleting our forests at a rate of over 32 million acres every year, which is impacting our ecosystem in so many ways. Two billion people in the world use a water source that's contaminated by human waste. In 2019, the U.S. federal deficit will total $984 billion. And the estimated deficit for the year 2020 is $1.1 trillion. Right now, the accumulated debt for all these years of which we've neglected to deal with this problem has rose to $23 trillion, and who's going to pay for that? Our children, 
and our grandchildren. I could keep going, right? But you didn't come to church the Sunday before Christmas, get depressed, did you? That's not why you're here. But the facts beg the question, how do we sing this phrase with integrity? He rules the world with truth and grace when there is so much that is wrong in the world. On the surface, it seems that God is not truly ruling. But let me tell you something about Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts wrote this hymn at a time that was probably more challenging than ours. He's writing these words less than a decade after the bubonic plague hit London and the surrounding area. And so this town, which is kind of a suburb of London, Southampton, has been devastated by over 100,000 people have lost their lives to that plague. And the aftermath of that was felt for many, many years. Economic problems and poverty. And in addition to that, Isaac Watts was a family that was considered nonconformist. They didn't quite agree everything that was going on in the Anglican Church and, and the, the expectation that everything had to be followed to a T with liturgy and singing. And so Isaac Watts' father was actually in prison for his beliefs the moment that Isaac Watts was born. And he was in and out of prison the rest of Isaac's life. He was either in prison or in exile. So I just share that to let you know that, that don't think that the song Joy of the World was written in a time in which it was easy to write those words. It was a time as troubling or more troubling than our own. But Isaac Watts wrote these words because of his deep faith, his trust in the scriptures that God really is in control. So exactly how does God rule with truth and grace? For me, these words have a double meaning. And the first way I like to look at this is, is what does it mean to say God rules with truth and grace? And, and the best answer for me is to think about how God doesn't rule. God doesn't rule by military power and might. How do most rulers rule? Most rulers rule and are known for the land that they've conquered, the military battles they've won, the size of the armies they led. Today, our more civilized leaders in the world resort to threats and rhetoric and demonstrations of military power. That's not how our God rules. Our, our God rules by sending a baby into the world. When God decided to issue in the kingdom of God, he came as a child, born to a humble family, a small town of Nazareth, who has to travel for a census, born in another indescript town of Bethlehem. And, and then they have to flee for their lives and live as refugees for the first couple of years in a foreign land of Egypt before they settle back down in Nazareth. Clearly, Isaac Watts has got this in mind when he writes these words. And as we know, he filtered his paraphrase of the 98th Psalm through the eyes of the New Testament and through Jesus. So he must have had these words from the Gospel of John, the first chapter in mind, when he said, the word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus did rule the world from a position of power. Jesus ruled the world with truth and grace. Jesus said, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. 
Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Jesus said, he who loses his life for the sake of the gospel will gain it. And that is how Jesus lived. Now, I know there's times we want a God who will ignore human free will and jump in there and fix everything, right? We love sometimes to have a God who will just ignore the laws of nature and human free will and come in and make right all the things that are wrong. Sometimes we want a God who makes us immune to the poor human decisions that we and others make that impact our lives. But that's not how God chooses to work in our world. God has a long-term strategy, a strategy that requires patience on our part, but which respects our human free will and the laws which run the universe. So that means we have to trust in the God who chooses to work through the Spirit, who comes into our hearts and minds and moves us one person at a time, one part at a time, to affect this world. I can't help but think about this exchange that took place between Jesus and Pilate, another place where that word truth comes out. Remember, Jesus has been brought to Pilate because the Jews didn't have the power to kill Jesus. They weren't given that authority. So they had tried him, they sent him on to Pilate so he could issue his edict and then get the deed done. But Pilate didn't really want to have anything to do with this mess. He, he could easily see that Jesus was an innocent man. He could see he's just ruffled the feathers of the Jewish authorities. And so he, he really didn't want his blood on his hands. But he didn't want to make that decision. He tries to put the decision off on the people, the crowd. That didn't all work out so well as they chose Barabbas over Jesus. Pilate had the power to put Jesus to death. He also had the power to set him free. It was part of the tradition that on the Passover, the ruler could set a prisoner free. But Pilate's curious about Jesus. So he gets in this conversation. And he asks him if he really is the king of the Jews. And what's Jesus' response? My kingdom does not originate from this world. My kingdom isn't from here. He says, you say that I am king. I was born and came to this world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice. And what is Pilate's answer? What is truth? It's, it's an answer that shows where he's at. He's in this precarious place where truth is a luxury. He, he's supposed to maintain the peace of Rome. He's got to do so without causing too much trouble. And so he's got to try to keep these religious, semi-autonomous rulers happy while at the same time making sure they respect the authority of Rome. And it's not an easy spot to be in. He tries to find a way around it. What I find interesting when you read this whole narrative, here's Pilate who has all the political power, has the ability to put Jesus to death, but when you read this narrative, Jesus is the one with the real power. Because Jesus lives with the truth. And so, look how it plays out. Pilate condemns Jesus to death. He's crucified. And then he's resurrected. He ends up being worshipped by millions and millions of people for two millennia. We're here now because of that. And how did Pilate's life end? Just a few short years after this, because he was too violent in squashing a rebellion in Samaria. He was pulled from his post, sent back to Rome, 
and he died in obscurity. There are even some traditions that claim he died of suicide. Well, the message for us in this story and in the lyrics of Isaac Watts is that eventually truth will win out. Might and power may have the sway for a short time, but eventually the truth will win out. And when we live our lives in that hope and that spirit, even though our short-term results may not appear what we want them to be, God takes our faithfulness, our truthfulness, and places into the work of the whole. And that takes place even in our own personal lives, doesn't it? As you look back in your lives, you see the things that you thought in the moment were terrible and tragic and sad and horrible. But now as you look back, you see how God brought some good out of those and blessed those experiences. Romans 5 makes that plain. We take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's one more meaning I want to pull from this phrase, truth and grace. And, and notice that this word, these words show up again later in the Gospel of John in 16 and 17. It says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. As the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. And the key here is that word, and. Grace and truth. And that is the challenge for us. Because we have a hard time as Christians living out that balance. Some of us get so carried away with truth. We would demand holiness. We were, we're so good at pointing out sin in other people's lives especially, sometimes our own, that we get it out of balance. Matt Tibby calls this the call-out culture. And the call-out culture is focused on making sure that everything's done correctly and every flaw and inconsistency is pointed out and dealt with. The assumption is that life is about doing the right things in the right way, and the best thing you can do for people is getting it wrong to point it out to them. And it tends to assume there's only one way that is the right way. So we call ourselves out, we call others out. We're obsessed with noticing sin. We can be that kind of Christian. But Nat Tebby also says that we can be that other kind of Christian. And he calls that the hangout culture. People that are so grace-oriented, so focused on forgiveness and freedom, that sometimes we neglect Bible study and moral standards, and we call those legalisms. And so we're weak on grace. We're strong on grace, but weak on truth. We can go overboard with that as well. And that's when we get so focused about everybody getting along. There's no conflict. Every, nobody feels uncomfortable. And so we miss out on the truth-telling that does need to take place and the truth listening that does need to take place. And when we live these things out in our parenting, sometimes the helicopter parenting is a manifestation of the hangout culture. But Jesus held these things together in perfect balance. It's important that we find that balance both for our marriages, for our parenting, and for the living out of our Christian lives in this world. We need grace and truth. And we got a great example of that. You know, when Jesus was brought to him, a woman who committed adultery, we see him live that out so perfectly. So this woman's brought to Jesus, and as we pointed out before, the interesting question is, where's the man? Because doesn't it take two? Yeah, 
the reason there's no man there is because this isn't about her. This is about getting Jesus in trouble. Because they think they got him in a no-win situation. If Jesus doesn't condemn her, then he's clearly violating the Jewish law that says that adultery is punishable by death. But on the other hand, if he does not, if he does condemn her, and the people that got the stones ready to go, they can say, Jesus told us to do it, then they can go to the Romans and say, look, he gave us permission to commit capital punishment, which we don't have the right to do. They thought they had Jesus. But Jesus responded with truth and grace. He says to the crowd, he who is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. And one by one, they drop their stones and walk away. And then he turned to the woman and did the same thing. Truth and grace. He says, woman, does anyone condemn you? And she says, no, sir. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And his truth telling to her was not so much about how wrong her life was, but to point out it was said in love. It was said with grace. Because he's pointing out to her that I don't know how you've gotten yourself in this situation, but you have the power to get out of it. I empower you to step out of that circumstance and live your life as God desires for you. Isn't that how we're called to live our lives? So let us trust that God is working his ways, not with might and power, but with truth and grace. And let us live faithfully, holding those two things in great tension. It's not easy to know in each situation what that means, but as we try, we will do well. Let us balance that truth and grace in this imperfect world where our perception of truth is never 100%, let us lead with grace, seeking the truth towards others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of this great hymn. As we sing them now, they mean even more. We appreciate that joy comes to us not because of our circumstances, but even in times of great trial and challenge and sorrow. You are still there, and you are with us. Give us that hope and faith this Christmas season, no matter what our circumstances, as we celebrate the birth of your Son into our world. Amen. <laughs>